You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Jason Nitz of Warforged and Spent Case. There's this episode and over 440 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. Hello and welcome to a fresh episode of the podcast. This one, this one is intense. This one is gear nerdery to the next level. Tristan is just incredible. He's an incredible musician, engineer, etc. And we really, really nerd out on the gear on this one because he literally makes all of his instruments. So this is this is so cool. If you haven't checked out Author and Punisher, go go give it a listen before you dive into this. Just grab a few tracks and and give it a listen to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. You might even want to go check out some YouTube videos of him in action because we go into his instruments, how he uses them, how he made them, all this stuff. It's really really fun. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I want to get right into this one, but I want to give one more heads up. I'm probably going to do this on every episode until the date, but the date is February 9th. Something really fun is coming on February 9th, and the patrons of this podcast are going to be the very, very first people to know about it, followed by the text and newsletter subscribers. So if you are at all interested in fun guitar stuff, I definitely suggest getting on any of those platforms. The text and the newsletter are, of course, free. And yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's really going to be awesome. So there's another warning for you. That is how to stay in the know at the earliest possible time. The patrons know first, followed by the text and newsletter. So February 9th, mark your calendars, set your reminders. Something's coming. That's all I'm going to say. The boxes have been shipped out to reviewers and demo people and musicians and just various cool people. So, yeah, it's happening. It's really happening. I can't wait for you all to see it. So, all right, without further ado, let's get into this episode with Tristan. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about gear and guitar stuff sometimes. Uh, I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, I have Tristan Schoen, better known as author and punisher. What's going on, man? Not much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited about this. This is another one um, where I was introduced to your music 
on the podcast. So this was years and years ago. My friend Paul Roney uh, was on and he was talking about how you do things. And I was obviously immediately fascinated and hit the Google machine. This is like 2015, I think. And following the project and it's it as a hyper gear nerd, it's endlessly fascinating, but you know, this is primarily a guitar based show. So it wouldn't be too shocking to me to find out that most of my audience wasn't familiar. So maybe we can go with the, uh, you know, 30,000 foot, view backstory real quick and we can get into the nerdery yeah sounds good uh so you want me to just sort of explain how i got into how author and punisher got started and stuff or? yeah i'm sure you've talked about that a billion times at this, this point but just to yeah. educate these these folks real quick yeah well i mean i had always played in bands and uh, uh you know kind of uh, i would say in the vein you know late 90s you know starting in about 94 95 in high school i started I was into the heavier stuff and got into Sepultura, Melvin's Neurosis. And I, I was sort of starting to play in bands. Um, and I had a band called Empathy Test back then. And it was a drum machine band with a friend of mine, Sean McCumber, who coincidentally writes for Decibel now. Um, but he, he and I were, had a drum machine band. It was a mix of sort of Fugazi mixed with a little Godflesh written beats and stuff. Cool. So then after that, when I got into college, I had another band called Falkirk, which we we played in the Albany area. I was at RPI on the uh, in Troy, New York. Um, that lasted till about 2000. Then I moved to Boston for four years, uh, working as a mechanical engineer at a company making like uh, automation, robotics, mm-hmm. telecom stuff. And it was just too dry for me. And I had a band out there that was a little bit more proggy, you know, with like dueling guitars and harmonies, sort of mastodon you know tool um too complicated for me to be quite honest like too many notes (laughs) i've slowed things down so you know and the complexities of having a band um and dealing with drummers and that smoke weed and you know can't pay the rent for the studio but find their uh can always fill their pot (laughs) uh collection so then i yeah i so I was also working for an artist named Chris Csikszentmihalyi. He was at the MIT Media Lab, and he's kind of doing big, large, in-scale installations and sort of kinetic sculpture and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was sort of working for him. I'd known him for a few years, on and off, building, helping him build his uh, sculptures. And he was very technical too, so he actually taught me a lot of stuff too. Um, and so when I was getting sick of working in an in industry. I decided I was going to go back to grad school for art and I could try to apply my mechanical engineering skills to a more creative uh, avenue, you know? Yeah. And so I went to, I applied to a bunch of schools and I actually went to the school he went to, which was UCSD, um, which had a three-year program, MFA. And uh, it was the best decision of my life. I mean, I, I like surfing. I'm not that good, but it was like a combination of some long mellow longboard surfing and working on at the machine shop all week and developing author and punisher at this time. So that's when I started the three songs from that band born that I had before became the first three songs of author and punisher. So, and and in that school, instead of developing sculpture, I sort of started building sound systems and building these machines um, to sort of, I loved the drum machine thing, but I didn't want it to be, uh, I didn't want to press play. And I, I do that still on maybe one or two tracks, an album or, or sequenced. I write the beats. I don't play them live. 
Um, but I don't play those songs live. And so I was trying to find a live way to do all this stuff, play the drums so that it was electronic sounding, but physically uh, organic played live. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how it started. It's, it's super impressive to me. So I'm, I have a mechanical background as well. I used to be a heavy equipment mechanic and then I worked in the oil industry for a while. And so seeing some of this stuff and then my friends, some of my, my, well, one of my best friends is actually a machinist. And so like, I've seen some of this stuff in action in other, you know, in other applications, like seeing the cable trays and seeing all the things I'm like, like, Oh wow, this is a fascinating application of all this stuff. It tickles both sides of my brain uh, in a really interesting way. But if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you were primarily playing guitar in these other bands, right? So how did you get into like figuring out the, I mean, because outside looking in the triggering of the, all the different instruments and software that you use is pretty complicated. This doesn't seem like something that you just wake up one day and, Oh, I, I know how to do this. Like just learning. I'm just barely learning how to use like some of the electron, uh, synthesizers and things and I'm those just, things are really complicated <laughs> they are that's, and that's probably the, yeah. the most complicated one so you know yeah it's like, so, got, so don't feel bad about that okay I'm good still, good still struggling with those myself i barely make them work properly okay good that yeah. makes, does make me feel a little bit better but um so like what was the first foray into that because i don't imagine you just set up the uh the mechanical system and just went for it you probably started with pushing a couple buttons here and there. Yeah. I mean, the drums were, were basically, were, were, were pretty simple. You know, I trigger the drums. I have a controller that I slide back and forth. I've made three of them now. I like the second one, the best called the rails um, because it's a combination of being lightweight, but still feels heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I can travel with it in a case under 50 pounds so I can check it as luggage. Oh, wow. Um, that's a big that was a big transition point for me from making the really large stuff to making sort of more practical, like, okay, if I want to actually go tour, I can't bring that heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, you know, I, on a tool tour, I did bring it for 12 shows and I won't do it again because it was, you know, the stage managers hated it. Um, it was a pain. It, it was just not practical. So maybe, you know, one, you know, if I have a festival one-off thing, like, Hey, we want you, we're going to pay to bring your big stuff to this festival because we want to see it or something. Okay, great. I'll do it. But so anyway, yeah, what happened was I was, I was playing like bass and guitar and you do that thing where you start to run your guitar into a, a splitter and, you know, a bass cab and a guitar cab and two cabs. And, um, and so that's kind of where I was at with my drum machine. And I was also building you know, I sold my Mesa Boogie dual rectifier, built my own trapezoidal four by 12 cab. Um, so basically I sort of, there was a, a guy in my grad school program, Matt Hope, and he was a, he's an artist and he lives in China now, but he came from like UK, German bass and house music, like rave scene in uh, the UK. So he, had, for all those raves, they build their sound system. You know, they'll, they'll go into a warehouse and they'll bring a truckload of speakers and this weird combination, you know, kind of like old dub reggae sound systems in Jamaica, you know? Yeah. That's where I think that kind of, they brought that culture over to the UK and then the, all the ravers uh, started building their own sound system. So he taught me how to build those speakers and said, Hey, we'll, we'll build you a trapezoidal cab for your guitar. 
it's 800 watts, you know, more on sound, like uh, um, PA level speakers, you know? So that was where it started is, is, is building, replacing all my speakers and then building subwoofers that were 18 inch folded horns. So I have two of those and I still take those on the road sometimes. Um, super low end, you know, like long projection. Yeah. And uh, so then I started to basically just craft my own tone. So instead of using a guitar, I used a synth or a throttles. They're all pitch controllers, whether it's a keyboard controller, yeah. a sliding pitch controller, or these throttles or the disc that spins. And I would map that into like a, a sub tone. So like I would have a massive sub, you know, that was like all under like a hundred Hertz, Whoa. 30 to hundred Hertz. And then I would layer on top of that, you know, like a sawtooth wave with some distortion. And then I would run it out through two distortion pedals that would go to cabinets. And so, you know, start to create this like multi-layered, you know, spatial tone that is basically the same as a guitar and a bass tone where yeah. your band would be like weed eater. You know, when I see them, they're almost like one player, you know, totally you know, Dixie and Shep will play the same thing all the time. And you can't really tell that it's, so that's what I tried to do, you know, mm -hmm. my audience will absolutely murder me if I don't ask what those distortion pedals were. Oh, okay. Well, um, it's been all over the place, but, uh, when I, uh, for the last tour, I'm just going to look this up because I always get the name of this one pedal wrong. Oh man. Um, this is exciting. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a massive pedal nerd. I have way too many pedals. Um, and yeah. that's how I, when I'm doing my music, I'm primarily playing the pedals more so than the guitar. So it's, yeah. It's an area that I find fascinating. Okay. So I had one side. So like on a tool tour, I had, um, you know, I have my synth stuff that goes direct out of, I have a UA 16 X 16, uh, sound card, mm -hmm. which I use 14 of those outputs. Wow. Um, I so I don't run a stereo output. So two of them are my in-ears mm -hmm. and I run 16. So I have the kick on its own channel. So just like a normal band. I have a patch bay on the back of my rack and I run the kick the snare, the cymbals and stereo. Um, I mean the kick is mono snares, mono cymbals and stereo. Then I have my synth tones, which are stereo. So that's like the low end heaviness. And then I have uh, a sequence that's stereo that's for rhythm. So, cause I do have some accompany, accompanying sort of rhythmic stuff like, mm -hmm. you know, just, that I can't play live, you know, right. where I have a, a sequence of synthy stuff. Um, that's a stereo. So that was that two, four, six, seven, eight. Then I have two guitar tones that I run out and one goes through an MXR bass DI. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, which I, I actually, so yeah, the, let's see. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So one goes through MXR bass DI, and then the other one goes through an electron analog drive pedal. Oh. And the reason I use some of those pedals is because the, the guitar distortion, and it, it's a lot of it has to do with it being line level, you know, out of the, the UA. Yeah. Doesn't like, doesn't play well with like guitar, basic guitar distortion pedals. Definitely. But I use the radial, um, what is it? It's a, it's a radial splitter. Mm -hmm. Like an so I can, or 
Hold on, let me look it up. It's a green one. Uh, it's a passive box. Oh, what is it? I don't see it here now. I kept getting this buzzing, and um, because I was, I, I sometimes split that tone to then go out to the PA as well because it's also another tone that I use. So it's kind of a guitar sounding tone that goes into these pedals, yeah. Just so that I play to the you know sort of the strengths of the pedal. So yeah, a balanced mic splitter. So I'd run it in there and then split it out because if I just used like a, a Y splitter cable, I'd get some weird buzzing on certain PAs and stuff. Yep. Yep. Different ground systems or whatever. Different ground systems. <laughs> and so we like before that tool tour, man, we like really I I say we I really <laughs> dorked out on getting my rack set up in a way that was like, you know, rock solid, you know, so that when they everything was labeled and they would come in and plug the, the the patch cable the patch patch in the back you know it was really easy um and i had so then on stage i had a custom made h2 custom made 18 inch bins so this is for the signal coming out of those distortion pedals um obviously goes into a power amp um yep. and then it, it would go to an 18 inch bin and then i have a 12 inch scoop bin on top a scoop is kind of like a reggae dub bin that you can it's for like low end stuff but it kind of has like natural frequency um suppression just by the shape of the horn and stuff right and so i use that for a lot of like lower mid-range and so for that tone it was perfect um so anyway and i won't cross it over or anything i just run it straight into well the, the sub on the 18 inch, I'll cross it over, you know, a hundred. So it's, it's just low. And then for the mid, I'll just leave it open. So you'll, it's kind of like, it's kind of just like if you take your hand and cover the tweeter on your, on your speakers at home okay. a little bit, just yeah. so it's just get a hint of the highs. But, yeah. It's not just shredding your eardrums with ice picks type of thing. You're just attenuating it a little bit. And then we would mic those cabinets on the stage. And so those are essentially my like guitar stacks. Yeah. You know, just so you get out of like a uh, digital land and the speed the sound system a little bit, you get, you get a little bit of, but to tell you the truth now, man, the second half of that tour, because we went to Australia and it was like kind of difficult. I had to really cut my gear down. So we went with a minimal setup and I ran direct with like neural DSP plugins. Oh, and okay. dude, I could not feel the difference when I recorded it. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> why did I bring all that? <laughs> uh, but in a small club, I think you definitely would hear it. But in those big places, you know, there's so much sound bouncing around and so much natural reverb that happens. It's like, right. Yeah. I would almost say it was better with the neural DSP in the big room because it was, I, I didn't, my sound guy didn't come with me down there. So you're getting the tool guys gave me like they they have like force sound people at the front and you get kind of, you can hire their like, you know, one of the other guys that's not their main sound dude to do your sound each night. And so I ended up doing that and it was great, but they, they, they hadn't toured with me and didn't know all the little tidbits about how it should blend. And they did great, but you know, just different. Right. So learn, well, it's a big learning curve. You know, you're used to a yeah. traditional rock style instrumentation and then you have to learn something completely out of your wheelhouse. So I, I get right. it, but you did, you actually answered in a, in some way, my next question, because uh, I just had Ken uh, from failure on and he was, you know, he's running all digital all the time these days, even in the studio. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I was thinking, cause, and a lot of that was, 
down to the reason a lot of guitarists have switched to those rigs, especially touring is reliability and ease of use. And I'm thinking like your rig is so much more complicated than practically any, any guitarist almost. Do you, what do you do if you do run into a technical problem mid set? Cause you can't just unplug a pedal and be like, well, I'm running direct now. Like yeah. you've got other things. So I have to imagine out of the hundreds of shows you've done, something is some wires got crossed somewhere. Like what, what do you do in those situations? Oh, where to start? Uh, <laughs> endless problems. Let me start with the most recent problems. Um, well, well, first, I used to just use a stereo output on a PreSonus um, sound card because they were cheap sound cards you could get for like five hundred bucks uh, mm-hmm. for an for an eight input, eight output. It had mic preamps in it, so I could run my microphones, and I didn't have to bring a separate mic preamp. So like that's the sound card, the PreSonus Audio Box eighteen eighteen thing is rock solid. People will say the sound quality is not that great, but I mean, you can't tell unless you're recording a symphony with like really nice microphones. You know, I I think for me it's uh, those sound cards. It's more about like driver quality, and you know, sometimes when they update Windows or update Mac, some of those cheaper companies their drivers aren't always in line with the, with the, mm-hmm. you know, with Mac or, and that's where I think you run into problems. So if you never upgrade your computer or never update it, you can use those cheaper cards. So anyway, but I splurged and got this better sound card so that I could run everything out. And that was, that was solving problem. The first problem, which was like, you know, basically just at shows, you know, you have a sound system, which really favors low end or really favors some frequency. And you've got a stereo for your entire mix kick vocals guitar sounds synths and you can't change it you know so now it's like the since i I separate all the sounds out the the sound most sound people know that a kick drum should sound like a kick drum and so anyway that was the first thing uh you know feedback on my microphone was a big thing oh right uh, i have a custom microphone that had these electric condenser mics that uh so I replaced those with dynamic mics that were like near field, like unidirectional mics rather than these kind of omnidirectional, you know, like with a lapel mic, it's down sitting on your chest. And so you want it to pick up a lot of what's near you. Yeah. And that's what I was using. Well, I had to change that using these really near field. Um, so that was a big, that helped a lot. I mean, the feedback was a huge problem for me. Uh, and then it was things like with the, uh, the USB connections because all of my devices are USB. So I'll have a U- powered USB hub in my rack and every device plugs into it with a USB cable. Okay. And USB is like a little bit wiggly, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. So yes. You're on stage and like it, them getting pulled out wasn't so much a problem, but just like a little bit of jiggling. And then also with USB, if you have a cable for 30 shows in a row hanging off of a USB device, um, you get a little bit of the solder connections tend to start to get a little worn and you get intermittent contacts. And every time, you know, if you use Ableton or use whatever program you use, if you unplug and plug in a USB thing, your whole software freezes for a few seconds yeah. until it reconnects or doesn't connect. And so that for me was changing all of my USB connections to be basically like it's an XLR type type usb device a new trick device uh connector oh yeah so that it plugs into a rack mount thing that then has a patch bay of you know 
small USB cables that go to each device that don't have any weight or any, you know, and then taping those, each one of those things or clamping each one of those down. So, and then the same thing with my sound card, like never plug the snake into the back directly into the sound card inputs. You got to have a patch bay that they plug into. Right. Because the sound card would like eventually start to hang off and then the connections would start buzzing and uh, just, you know, so basically I've patch bayed the hell out of everything in my setup now. Right. Just um, giving it that mechanical break, you know? So, mm-hmm. yep. Cause the patch bays are stronger than the connections on the interfaces and stuff. And yeah. And you can change them out easier. If like, if that thing dies, then you can, rather than buying a whole new, you know, interface or sound card or whatever, you just redo the patch. bay. That, that was a huge thing. And, and my sound guy and I, John used to like, go especially on the weed eater tour we every like sixth show we would have a situation where my outputs would just be shooting like a loud beeping noise on one output and we could never figure it out it was basically like you the 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 um phantom power would be on mm-hmm. and the sound card that i it would blow my inputs the second we would like you know today is the day was playing and the second i would plug their mic inputs into the back of my sound card it would just blow the channel um, so anyway, it was just, uh, learning that, um, you know, checking all these things. So, yeah, I'd say that's kind of, that was sort of, especially on, and on tool, I had one pedal, which was a Logity. Um, I used this Logity MIDI pedal. That's the company L O G I D Y. Mm-hmm. That is basically it's three buttons that are MIDI programmable. Yep. Um, and so it also has a sequencer option so that if you hit one button you can just cycle through eight different midi notes and so for me it was basically as you hit it it would just go this one and would just keep going through those eight so that's how i trigger off each one of my songs is with a foot pedal so i can be like hit the pedal and the song goes right into it or i hit the pedal and it gives me a count off and now i just take the whole circuit board and embed it in epoxy um and so that the thing can't move nice And that was the only problem I had on that tour technically. Mm -hmm. Um, So, well, moving away from the the gear side a little bit, I'm curious, like, you know, getting, getting to open for tools. I mean, they're clearly one of the biggest bands in the world. Like, how did that all come about? Um, Yeah. I mean, as you guys know, have you been to stump fest up there in Portland? I know, but I do Um, know about it. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. They do stump. Uh, Ryan Stump is married to Danny Carey. So they're a, she and her sister have a festival up there. Um, and although I never met Danny at the festival, I got to know them, um, you know, Yob and uh, all these bands who else mm-hmm. plays up there, um, the body. And, and um, so anyway, they, <clears throat> he would, uh, they live in LA. So they would come to my shows a couple of times, um, Danny and Ryan. And then, uh, Adam Jones came to his show when I toured with Three Teeth because he, they had taken Three Teeth out. He knows Lex, for a singer from Three Teeth, pretty well. And that was the summer before they took me out. And then uh, uh, Maynard's wife, Jen Keenan, had me come play the uh, the Jerome Pussifer store, which is like kind of their vineyard and record store in uh, Jerome, Arizona. Oh, yeah. Right on. Yeah. That's that was cool. Uh, a venue, not a venue. It's it's literally like a wine and record store. Uh, That's awesome. There, yeah. I want to go there? That sounds awesome. 
It's really cool. They have a barbershop there and it's, uh, you know, they're a really cool group of folks up there just kind of carved out their own little world. Pretty rad. That's awesome. Super cool. Yeah. Was it a, a bit of a shock to the system to go to playing these big stadiums all of a sudden, or were you feeling pretty good about it by that point? Well, I'm pretty used to playing. I love playing on big sound systems. Like when I get to play festivals, um, you know, that was probably the biggest shows I'd played have been like, uh, I played Roskilde, which is this festival in, uh, near, um, Copenhagen Mm -hmm. and big open air Coachella type of thing. And I got to play in one of those tents, I don't know, four or 5,000 people. And I loved it other than the stress of festival stress of getting on and off really quickly and with no sound check. But, uh, so when I got to the, other than just sort of being nervous about what the fans and what the environment would entail, once I got up on that stage and hit the first bass notes, it was rad. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I've heard a lot of people say like, Oh, I caught him on that tour and it blew my mind. You know, that was a, I let the, the people in the tone mob Facebook group know you were coming on. There was a lot of people like, Oh, I'm so excited for this episode. I'll put in things and ask questions. And sometimes, especially when it's somebody like you that has a, a, a pretty decent sized audience, the, there won't be as many questions. You'll just be like, I don't care. I'm just stoked for this episode. And so yeah. there was a lot of that, but I did get some, uh, uh, some questions. So let me pull that up real quick yeah, nice. and we will, we'll get into that. So I don't get in trouble. Cause I do occasionally, uh, occasionally forget that I do that. And then I get in trouble with everybody and they're mad at me. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's see. We got, Dave Trombetti, this is an interesting question. Does, does inspiration for a machine come from the same place as inspiration for the music? Um, well, I, I think it, I would say it probably does. I mean, I, I you know, the, and, the, and the machines don't always work out. So I'll have this idea for a long time because you start, you'll just be sort of sitting there and when I'm feeling creative and sort of maybe, usually it's like when I'm on a hike or I'm like in the shower and I'm like, you know, on a Friday and I'm like thinking about like, have to be in a good mood <laughs> and sort <Yeah>. of thinking <laughs> about like, like that's when like melodies will come into my head or like yeah. rhythms, you know, and I'll, it always goes back to like some simple, I always like, Oh, I'm going to really get simple in this next record, make this thing really, you know, really simple riffs. And so there was this one called Gridiron, which was the, the drum controller, rhythm controller that I most recently built. And it has like a stylus uh, on the end of it. And it's actually an X, Y rather than just a, a straight back and forth. Mm-hmm. So you, there was basically, I would set up these, this whole grid of strips of aluminum that had machine grooves in it at different, okay. at different spacings. And so as I move and the stylus was on an encoder as the X and Y was on the encoder and I have the eight buttons on the handle. And so I would be able to move this stylus into these grooves and sort of create these, like I wanted to create this like really organic industrial sounding, like clang. Yeah. You know, almost like a, you know, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, in theory, and I was like, Oh man, this is going to be like new industrial. And in theory it would work great, but it just, you know, I don't know. It was kind of weird because it was almost like, it's like trying to drive your car over those little bumps in the road to make rhythms. But like you have to calculate how fast you're moving 
and what the spacing is between the things. So anyway, that one was a little, I, I made some like miscalculations uh, in my brain when I was making that thing somehow, because it never really worked the way I wanted to. But mm-hmm. that was an idea where the music and the device were like one, you know? Right. That That makes sense. And I think as much as like the machining aspect of it is technical, I think there's there's so much more overlap than it first appears on the surface you know uh, when when i first heard about it i was like i don't even understand but as i've gotten a bit better at making music myself and like watching you in action now i'm like i can actually get my head around how how this would happen five years ago i was like this is absolutely insane i i don't know how anyone ever would ever do this so it, all yeah. that all that pencils that all makes sense yep Let's see. All right. Let's see what else we have for, for question. Ooh, uh, you may have answered this somewhat already, but there, I think, and you did answer the second part of the question. I think Uh, Noah Barnett, he says, he says, I mean, obviously ask him what his favorite machine is that he's built. And also if there's a machine he built that he likes, but can't find a use for, I think you did answer that second part. Yeah. Well, yeah, that one, I would say that one was definitely, but also the the masks that I've built are, are uh, some of these mechanical masks or something that were, you know, I had sort of thought maybe I would have on stage with me, but sort of practically with air compressors and wires coming off and actually miking the tone that was coming out of my voice when I had this like physical device opening and closing the air gap and uh, really is See, see what Sada was doing. She's like, uh, what's that motion? <laughs> like, you know, when I'm... It didn't really <laughs> match up. Um, uh, so those masks were like, they worked really well. And like in the acoustic gallery, we did a thing with a piano player. And, but for like, you know, the chaos of live setting, um, I, it didn't really work. Right. Um, but I was proud of it. You know, I made it, I did it, you know, I don't have to. And what was the first part of the question? Oh, the favorite device. Yeah, favorite device. Yeah. I mean, it would just have to be the drum controller, the rails, the one that slides back and forth. Yeah. Um, I machined the aluminum handle. The buttons are are strange because they're really spiky and they dig into my my fingers. But because of that, I, I it's much easier to locate them when I'm playing. So there's they're not like soft and. Like mm. Where you can't find them. These things are like, oh, so sometimes when you pull the top off of a button and it's just that little plastic cylinder, it's like two millimeters in diameter. Yep. That's kind of what they are like. Uh, yeah. So, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. I think I've seen some momentaries that are similar. I don't know if they're exactly yeah. the same, but yeah. And that thing has just been rock solid for me and it's really simple. Um, and you know, if I need to replace parts on it, they're easily sw- to swap out and stuff. So, cool. Let's see what else we got here. We got some. I mean, yeah, Beastland, such a killer album. We've got all kinds of like a lot of that. I'm so excited for this one. Let's nice. see. We got. Um, here we go. Okay, Joshua Dupree. This is. I think this will be the last Facebook group question. Is there a dream instrument or device that you know you could bring to your set to the next level, but it's just too much? <laughs> oh. Device to bring me to the next level. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of 
um, if I had sort of budget that a tool or a, a certain band had, and I could really, or a Rom, you know, Romstein or something, mm-hmm. I always think about like, if I could get a setup to that point, I would, I would probably splurge a little bit and, and go with some of the more elaborate designs that were heavy and not thinking about how I'm going to fly it over somewhere, you know? Right. Because so much of what I do is limited by that, you know, which I, to tell you the truth, I'm almost relieved that that isn't the case because then it's like, where do you stop? And the pressure to have this sort of ridiculous stage setup would be always there, you know, and half the people might just be into like, not into the music, but into looking at this sort of, you know, burning man, you know, Mm -hmm. author and punisher setup. Whereas for me, some of it is nice, just how simple I've got my road set up to be because I can focus more on the music and not on, robots running around and (laughs) that was actually going to be a question i was going to segue into is how much of your design is predicated on it looking cool on stage versus you know actually being i mean it's all functional clearly you wouldn't make it if it didn't work but how much of it is is an aesthetic consideration well i mean to be honest i i really obviously there's i i work as an engineer so like some of that stuff um there's, there's a certain cleanliness in the aesthetic in terms of like, if I'm going to make parts out of aluminum and I'm going to chamfer the edges and um, I'm going to make them a certain shape. But in terms of, I can tell you what every single part on them, you know, does, you know, yeah. it's functional, whether it's to just sort of, as you were saying with like the wire carriers, the, ch- the chains and the, there's the bellows that cover my electronics. And that's exactly what they use in the robotics industry. Like, underneath uh mills Uh when they move in x and y they have that kind of bellow camera uh, vinyl um protection so chips don't get into the you know the gears and everything so um so it kind of just works to my advantage that the aesthetic of the engineering stuff is something that people in the audience aren't used to seeing whereas i see it every day at my job in any sort of motion control um application yeah Um, so yeah, I like that that's my aesthetic, but I, I, I surprisingly don't make that many choices. Like we're actually talking today, yesterday about this sort of, because we're, I don't know, we can get into this, but for the gear company that's coming, that we're, we're designing this stuff for now. That's the next thing I want choices. to talk about. So let's just yeah, there's some, into it. There's some choices there that we, we can make now that um, are maybe a little different than I would have that I have done things in the past. And so we're, we're getting, we're at that point now where the things are designed, at least the first round, they're pretty much like already we've manufactured little prototypes and, you know, really messed around with each key and knob and things, but the look, you know, like, Oh, are we going to powder coat these? Are we going to use steel or brushed aluminum? Are we going to, you know, all these sorts of decisions, um, which are the really the fun things. Yes. Um, because like the coating that you use on the case, you need a coating because otherwise the steel or the aluminum will get scratched. So do you, there's so many fun options there, you know? Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, from a, from a, from a sort of a, uh, a, an engineering perspective, like I, you know, I hate things like when people rubberize plastic to make it have a grip. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, what, I, I don't want to use there's just like little decisions there that I wouldn't ever make. Um, 
four like anodized red and blue. I hate those. Like the people make like anodized aluminum flashlights. Um, <laughs> so there's so we're sort of like trying to figure that out. Anyway, it's fun. Yeah. Can you give us some idea of what the first products are going to be from that? Or is that still kind of under wraps? Yeah, yeah, we can talk about it. Um, really, they're, they're going to be based on the current instruments that I made. Because these, these ones that I'm using now were pretty much refined versions of previous things I had made. Okay. So it's, it's kind of been like slowly um, refining these really rough designs and ideas that I had into something now that can be like not mass produced, but produced in quantity. And like, um, you know, obviously the electronics need to be encased now and we want to have like outputs, um, for like CV, um, for modular synth. um, we're going to have USB C instead of USB A and B we're going to have because the connector is better um midi in midi out uh there'll be ethernet although it's ethernet capable so that you can um send osc or midi over ethernet or power the device <clears throat> over ethernet so like cool yeah for me having my devices all be like um connected to a ethernet hub you know uh, and then powered through that same connection that's a really like long range uh um, communication protocol more, and it's a much more rigid, you know, with the snap in ethernet, um, cable. Yeah, definitely. So, so that's, sorry, I went through like the connections and the outputs, but the actual devices will be, yeah, there'll be like, the, I have this one called the mini rack and we're still coming up with a name for that, but it's essentially a, a sliding key, um, that is really simple. Those two keys, um, mine are just touch sensitive, but the, the new ones will have uh, you know, like after touch, touch sensitive, velocity sensitivity, and also a little bit of a, instead of, in addition to sliding this way, you'll be able to get a little bit of extra motion in the Y. Uh-huh. Um, so, and so there's an encoder that reads it this way. And then one that's this way and the touch sensitivity. And, um, the reason we're doing the extra access of a little bit of motion is this thing called MPE, which is, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, it's, MP MIDI, sorry. This is educational for everybody right now. This MIDI great. polyphonic expression, which is um, recent developments in MIDI um, as a method of using enable multi-dimensional controllers. Um, and it has more of an, ends up being a more like um, organic sound because you're getting three streams of MIDI like expression data at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And so some software now have been like, or some software since and Ableton now you'll, you'll notice at the bottom, they'll have like a MPE button or MPE enabled. So uh, the guy, Jason Began, who's the Viter, who's like our synth guy in the company. He, um, he also produced the record. He, there are certain things he's like, we have to have. So we need to have three streams of data on like every device. Um, That's exciting. So that's a sliding key. And then the other one is just a knob. It sounds really boring, but um, when you take a knob and it's either, you know, it's, it's probably, I don't know, four or five inches in diameter and four inches thick, very heavy minor aluminum that I use now, but we'll have them in wood, stone, granite, um, raw steel. Cool. And it, 
it's a knob that has a you know ball bearings and a shaft very well supported on the back side so that you know you if you spin this thing it will spin for a very long time uh -huh. um and so being able to use that control pitch or use it as a drone knob or just use it as a simple knob controller um you know capacity touch and things like that so just being able to, for someone even a guitar player to have a a knob or a pioneer deck so you could have a knob mm -hmm. um and then the third and last one that were at least to start out these are just the initial products um it's one called the ingot which is exactly like one that i already use um if you it's a it's basically like a disc of aluminum or steel or wood or stone that spins and slides on a shaft um so you can you can spin it use it as like a drone knob or use it as a swell. And then you can also, you know, slide and you can have that be pitch data. Um, so between those three things, we just hope that people will incorporate these into like their, uh, you know, their current, whatever their rig is, you know, if their studio and they want to slot it 19 inches into a, a rack and their modular gear, um, mm -hmm. or you can just hook it up to a, a, a you can hook it up to a computer or you can hook it up to an electron synth and have it be the controller for the sound. You know? Yeah, definitely. No, this is, this is, this is taking a lot of boxes for me. I'm like, wow, this sounds like this sounds <laughs> so much like so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people will probably be a little, you know, I think sometimes people that are guitar oriented, uh, they want something that they can make sound with. And so that's, these are open source. You can program these to output sound if you want, but it's a teensy, which is a, you know, it's a, it's like an Arduino or a raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. um, it's a programmable. So you can program these to output basic sound, but uh, maybe eventually we'll have synth engines in our devices so that like, you know, we could get make noise or some company to like design us a sound module to put in so that like this thing outputs sound like an analog synth. Right. But for now, it is a it is a controller. I'm I'm thinking about how to hook it up, hook some of this stuff up to some of my crazier pedals that have MIDI inputs. So some of like my Chase Bliss stuff or the uh, specifically the hologram electronics uh, uh, microcosm is what I'm yeah. imagining. I'm like, oh man, because I could plug into that and output to to a stereo rig, and because what I do is I'll. I'll set a bunch of pedals up on the table and I'll have this, this idiotic rig, just this running cables all over the place and outputting to multiple amplifiers. And I, I'm playing the guitar, but I reach forward and I'm twisting knobs in the middle of things and play. And so I'm, this is like, Oh man, to be able to control some of this stuff in a really organic way. Right. Like, the, like you were talking about the knob and how it's like, that sounds simple. I'm like, yeah, that sounds perfect. Like, you know, <laughs> like, well, it's something, awesome. it's a weird thing because I think a lot of times, you know, it's like my big disc that I made, you know, yeah. that thing is people say, well, why does it need to be so big? And why does it need to be so heavy? I'm like, okay, well, if you put it, you know, if you put it on a really nice bearing and I get this thing up to speed, it will stay spinning for a while and then it will slowly slow down. Mm -hmm. And so you could do that manually. So you could slow it down with your hands and, you know, and sort of that curve of pitch over time will, you know, because I have it right now, the faster it goes, the higher the pitch. So it'll be a note on. And then if you slow it down, but if that were made of plastic, you would be able to slow it down very fast. 
Yeah. So it's almost like you can hear how light you can hear how there's no rotational inertia in the device, you know? So now like by making these things heavier and having weight, and it's the same with my handle that I slide back and forth. If it were too light, then the, you know, so the distance between the time between the beats would be difficult for me to control. Whereas now I'm just kind of like the weight and the distance. It's a very natural, like it, it requires force for my arm to slide it. Yeah. So it's on par with like my level of strength, you know, whereas if these things are too small, we're all, we're constantly having to restrain our physical ability, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to turn this tiny little knob and like with my whole body's weight, you know, like wait, <laughs> it's too small. Well, I'm equating it to like, you know, uh, the difference between a cheap, like Casio keyboard and a nice piano with weighted keys, the physical reaction of how that feels. Or if you're trying to play, you know, in a drop C and you're using a set of sevens, like it doesn't, yep. really, it doesn't respond the way you want it to or feel correctly. So I, I totally get like the whole idea behind your setup is to bring physicality to electronic music, right? Like that's the whole idea is try to make it more interactive in the real world, not just in buttons and sliders and things. It's like, you're actually grabbing a hold of that note and like, yeah. you know, making it into a, a real physical experience for yourself and for the audience. And so, I mean, as soon as I saw the stone wheel, I was like, yeah, I get it. Or the big, the yeah. big desk. I get it. You know, some people, you know, and it, it is like, a, it does take this sort of, you know, leap of faith because you do need to also design a sound. I think some people I've seen, yeah, I've seen people sort of send me like, Hey, I, I built a, a sliding controller or something like, Hey, I want to show you. And they, they're like a DIY to some, you know, linear slide with a button or and then they'll like use it or they'll make a pitch controller. But then it, you have to just still design a sound that, that sort of feels good with that tone, you know, totally. You can't have a slide whistle sound like, <laughs> you know, like I mean, you could. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, there's that whole side of things too. Like, so I, I think finding finding your own personal ways to. I, that's why I'm kind of excited to see is like, how will people use these? Mm -hmm. um, because I don't think they're going to use them like I use them. I mean, also industrial doom metal is not the large, most popular uh, <laughs> uh, genre. So it'll be, I, I expect it to be some people more maybe in the techno and uh, EDM or hip hop or some stuff like that. Producers will find ways to, to be a little bit more organic with some of their pitch controllers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm already, the brain's already firing. I'm on the mailing list. I'm my, I'm ready. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're still waiting for a lot of parts and stuff right now because that whole thing is the electronic parts are kind of hard to get right now. So we're oh yeah, we're just waiting and keep like refining prototypes until we can get the yeah. So, so I have a couple things I want to get into, but we've we've talked obviously a ton about your rig and your your gear. Do mm -hmm. you do you still play guitar? Well, it's funny you ask that. My brother started. Uh, you know, at 50 years old, he started playing guitar. And I sent him the Yamaha that I bought back in like 95 because I wasn't really playing it. Mm -hmm. And um, he kind of tricked me because he said it was for my nephew. 
I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then I, I, my nephew was like, that's for my dad. So I, was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I just gave you a guitar. Right. But he's, I'm super happy because uh, my dad and I were always playing when we were growing up. And he, uh, so now he is. So he's, he's pretty good. And he, we go back and play Neil Young songs. So now I'm thinking about getting the acoustic again. Oh, yeah. But I got a Les Paul Custom 1979 that I uh, bought back in like the mid 90s and I still have it. Adam Jones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except that I, I did some things to it maybe back then that I shouldn't have like replaced the tuners to locking tuners and I put EMGs in there because I wanted to sound like Meshuggah. But what do hey, you do? You know, that's all right. Yeah, that's it. It's funny that, that you bring that up with 79 because. I'm after the the Adam Jones one came out like I just I have an 81 custom it's white but it's it's you know so it's not the the silver burst that I woke up and everyone's tagging me like did you see what happened to the prices of Les Paul customs on reverb and it was like literally like overnight everybody that had a silver burst all of a sudden was like well mine's worth four million dollars now because the adam jones ones came Holy out not four million i'm exaggerating yeah a lot of money but they jumped from like you know something that was reasonably attainable to something fairly expensive and then even mine like doubled even though it's not the silver burst and i was just like well i'm glad i got this one i did because adam just went ahead and wrecked the 79 to 82 les paul custom market <laughs> it's it's kind of insane so wow. like even though you've tweaked yours, I bet it's still a you know fairly valuable instrument at this point. So, and pickups, yeah, I'll never tuners, get that's that's easy. That's that's nothing. That's nothing major. That's easy. Money. I think somebody could go in and just fill them in and re-lacquer it or who the hell knows. But I'm not going to sell it. I love the thing. It's so heavy. Yeah. Um, I, I had so many guitars over the years. I wish I didn't get rid of. Um, I had some weird like Ibanez, like banana, like gold that looked like a Les Paul, mm -hmm. but it was an Ibanez, you know, just ornate kind of thing. And I, oh, yeah. I, I it was a weird device. I don't know that they ever even made anything like that, but I bought it for a few hundred bucks and then I sold it. I shouldn't have sold it. It was weird and cool. Weird and cool. I get it. So I do want to talk about the new record just a little bit before we yep. dive into the, the classic questions that I wrap this thing up with, but yeah. So the new record, I've, I've only heard the new, the two singles so far and love them, but it is quite, quite a departure. Like you, you seem to be exploring like a less wall of sound approach and going into like more dynamic texture based things. And it's a really interesting, like the first time I sent one of my friends, you know, some of your older material, he's like, man, this is like awesome and scary. And, and then I hear yeah. the stuff and it's like, this is very huge and anthemic and like cinematic sounding, but it's pretty. It's kind of a different thing. Is this just a product of, you know, I've done that already. Let's try something new. Or where's this coming from? Well, in some ways, the loan for me, like you, the heaviness, that for me is like, I'm really happy with where that's at on this record. I was able to really get that mixture of sub mixed with those other heavier tones, but giving it this really wide, you know, it's kind of wide berth. Like it sounds like it's in stereo and the low end feels like it's just like this fog that's all over the floor. And for me, that's like kind of 
that was a, a triumph to be able to get that sound and have that sound how I wanted it. Um, so heaviness wise, I feel like it's like really heavy and it hits the subs if you have subs really nicely. And so then for me, I did, that was like most of the problem solved. And so then the vocals, after listening to my performances on tools tour, like I recorded them all and released that live record. Mm-hmm. Um, I really got to listen to me in the best possible scenario, you know, and I, I had the sound guys, I had the best sound system. I bought all this gear so I could really be honest, you know, coming back from the pandemic and had a little time and just be like, okay, what worked and what didn't work, what's working for me. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing was just like, trying to make the vocals blend better with the music. I always felt like, I always feel like when I'm, I'm playing, the vocals were like this weird little thing up here and the, the rest of the music kind of fit, but the vocals. So for me, like, it was like, okay, let's completely redo the, well, I got a new microphone now. I got rid of my other one. I, mean, I still have it, but I, I've designed a new one that has a new microphones that really have, you can hear the inflections of your voice better. Um, I really wanted, you know, when I, I would go listen to bands like James Blake, a different genre, but like James Blake, or uh, I remember seeing like Air or, or like Everything But The Girl and how these like, these are totally like synth bands. Um, yeah. But how the voice, you can really hear like the breath of the voice and it. I wanted my presence of my voice to be like that rather than with distortion on it, like someone was referring to like a megaphone. Um, so that's where I started and I, screaming wasn't working. So singing, uh, when I was, once I recorded all the songs, walking around the, the melodies were much more uh, like, like synth melodies than they were like aggressive, angsty vocals. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one thing that really stands out is it's cool to hear you describe it because the, it does seem like the vocals came to the forefront versus being kind of somewhat of an afterthought, not that they necessarily were, but it's, it seems like they were really the focus of this. And I, I don't think that's normally what people expect out of you. So I think that's a cool departure. And at the same time, it's still an author and Punisher song. Like it doesn't sound yeah. like it's not you. you know, it's just a new side, which is cool. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it was a, I'm happy with it. I, I, I'm now practicing, you know, a lot. And so really, you know, with tours getting canceled, I've had some more time now, you know, to really like sit in the studio and and sing along with it and, and, you know, getting the in-ear monitor system, uh, tools monitor guys really helped me because I got to listen to Maynard's mix one night and sort of see uh, what he hears, you know, like, so getting rid of a lot of the kick drum in my in-ears and getting rid of a lot of anything below like 150 hertz and then sort of EQing my voice without any effects in my ears, mm-hmm. um, which is, which makes for kind of a dull listening experience for me while I play live. Right. Cause I'm so used to making as much bass as I, you know, in my ears, I want to be like flooded, but then I wasn't singing on pitch. And so I really had to change my ears. And so coming back from that tour and having sort of improved that setup, now I have a lot more confidence about it. Cool. Very cool. Um, and then for the sound, just the difference in sound, like I have some collaborators, obviously Danny and Justin from Tool played and 
that really made those tracks unique, having live drums and live bass for things that I haven't had for a long time. But um, I would say Phil Scrosso, who played guitar on the whole album um, and wrote all the guitar parts, um, melodies. He's and then piece. Jason Began did yeah. a lot of the um, electronic. You know, I wrote a lot of the electronic stuff, but he wrote a lot of electronic stuff too. Little sound textures and synth lines like that we used. I would write them with VSTs or a couple of electron synths. I didn't spend a lot of time sound designing. Uh, Jason is a synth guy and we went and ran each synth line out through like seven different runs with different combinations. And, um, and then I would pick through and pick and choose. So um, I don't think there's many parts on the record where it's like textureless, you know? Yeah. Um, um. I'm very excited to hear the whole thing. I'm very, very excited about it. So yeah, it's more of the same, you know. Yeah. Um. You'll yeah. Cool. Hopefully, people dig it. Yeah. All right. Well, we have ne- we're nearing the end of the main episode of the podcast, and yeah. there are a couple of classic questions I like to wrap things up on. But before I do that, this is a chance where I like to give the guests a chance to you know shout out their aunt Tilly. Uh, they can plug whatever they want to plug. Anything you want to say to a, you know, a few thousand people right now, that's uh this is your opportunity to do so. So go for it. Okay. Well, yeah. First, I'd like to shout out to Augie Arredondo who, uh, yeah. with you. He's, uh, Augie's, if you've ever watched a uh, terror bird, um, video or shame or most of my videos, uh, he did the Nile strength video on Beastland. Um, Augie's a great filmmaker and, and, video editor and does a lot of color and um also horror movie and we're good friends and we just uh yeah we're gonna make a video probably for this album too um but a little bit later once we get some of the new gear um because i really want to he shot some car commercials and stuff and i want to use that sort of i want to get really down dirty through the gear and um so yeah cool and yeah. then I guess the other thing, yeah, just drone machines are coming out soon. So look at the follow, give us a follow underscore drone machines underscore. Um, and you'll start to see these, these coming out and I'll have them on tour and hopefully these tours happen. So yeah, you know, go to author You can look at the, the tour schedule. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Shout out Augie. Thank you for, uh, making this happen. And for the listeners of this podcast, Augie, uh, He's on the text chat, and that is literally how this happened. So that is in the show notes. That's my little plug. You never know yeah. what can happen if you join the uh, the text chat because it does come directly to me, and I respond to every single person. So, yeah, hit that up if you want to talk to me. All right, last questions. So first one, I'll be I'll be really curious to see where you go with this one. <sighs> what is your favorite boss pedal? Oh man, that's a good question. It's- I'm going to first say I have a guitar player now and uh, it's, it's not Phil because Phil tours with his own band a lot, but uh, Doug Sabolic uh, is from ecstatic vision and uh, also life once lost. He'll be touring with okay. me. And so we, we've been trying to figure out the tone and, and uh, Phil used HM2 pedal on a lot of the lower heavy stuff. Um, and so I just bought one of those and a couple of boss uh, delay and reverb. Uh, and a mute pedal and sent them to Doug so that we could try to recreate what Phil did on this record. Um, so we're going to try that out, but I would say for me personally, I really liked the, um, 
when I was just started doing the guitar drum machine stuff, it was the, I was using metal zone and delay verb. The, I don't remember which one it was, but that's how I started. Um, that was my basement, you know, that was my basement metal. So that's awesome. And, it, and the SR 16 Alesis drum machine. There you go. Perfect. Okay. This is the last question. This is the one that gets a little bit dicey, a little bit controversial, but, uh, mm-hmm. we'll get into it. Controversial. And it, this actually lines up because I was watching an, uh, an interview that you did. I think I, I think I'm not sure exactly what the situation was because it was really late at night when I was watching it. But I sent I think I sent the clip to Augie. You were making pizza. So the last question is, what is your favorite kind of pizza? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things I thought you were going to get. Into. <laughs> this is see now you're speaking my language. Um, favorite type of pizza. I mean, I, I would have to say that the basic, just Neapolitan style is really my, my go-to is kind of the, you know, the Holland's Opus or like the, the, the one that I've been trying to make. Yeah. Detroit pizza is, is too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I, I've got a good stove set up and a, and a stone, because you can just do it in the pan and you, you fill it up with all the, <laughs> my wife is looking, she's so sick of me talking about pizza. Oh, this, well, I'm not. So, you know, so Detroit is not, but the Neapolitan style, um, now that I've got the pizza peel and you know, the semolina and you know, the right flour, double O flour and the, um, you know, the two day rise and getting that combination. So that, that's really what I like, you know, getting mm-hmm. the, bu- the black bubbles on the top of the crust um, getting a perfect bend when you pull it off and just that good sort of fermented flavor in the dough. And, oh, the, but it's tough. You know, I, my wife's, um, my mother-in-law's stove is, is and, my, and my parents' stove are these I, hard to work with. So like, you know, when you're making it at home, you don't have a pizza oven. So uh, it gets a little inconsistent and difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I talk about pizza on every episode. I'm a, I'm a pizza fiend. I'm, I just, yeah. I'm wearing my Frank Pepe t-shirt today. Uh, okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's pizza is a big part of the the podcast. And so for my 30th birthday here a few years ago, some of the listeners got together and got me one of those uni pizza ovens, the little, oh yeah, and this was the earlier iteration of them. They've changed them a little bit, but mm-hmm. I can tell you, I think is a lot of fun for the home pizza chef. It, it gets you some, it's it it takes a while to master, but it does get you some. And I'm I have not mastered it, but I, I occasionally, you know, blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while, and I I pull something off of there. I'm like, I can't believe I did this. This is so good. So I definitely check one of those out if you're a home pizza enthusiast. Check out those uni ovens. They're they're pretty. Yeah, because I imagine it gets you. I, I've been using a broiler lately. Um, I will basically move the stone right up under the broiler. Mm-hmm. and uh and, and cook it under there and that it's amazing how much better it is at the higher temperature with the same exact dough i've done tests where i move it to the middle and do 450 or 500 mm-hmm. and I cook a pizza or i cook it and that takes about 10 minutes and then if i do it right up on the broiler it takes about three minutes and i have to turn it in the middle yep. it's crazy to have a pizza cook that fast yeah yeah that's that's definitely the uni experience because the it's a wood well you can get it with gas but it Mine's a wood pellet situation. Oh, yours is? Oh, yeah. Shit. So you load it up with the wood pellets 
and then you like you light it with like a torch through this little hole and then yeah. it starts it starts the draw I and mean, everything heats up and it heats up super super hot and so you you do you just, you do it it's like a mini version of being like a real pizza chef you slide it in there on the stone you let yep. it cook for a minute and a half you open it give it a spin and then you, you pull it off and it's like so again sometimes it takes a it's a there's a learning curve to it but yeah it's small and portable it's like and mine i don't know what the new ones are like exactly but mine will like break down to where it can fit like you could put it you know in a in a like a cupboard or something if you wanted to you could take the smokestack off of it and i pretty much leave mine set up but they're very very easy to deal with so that's awesome an appliance goes yeah i'm gonna take a look at that that's a good suggestion i think augie actually got one of those (laughs) (laughs) so we uh yeah rad cool man well thank you so much for hanging out this was awesome we'll slide over to patreon and you know maybe we'll talk about some more nonsense yeah yeah that sounds good i love talking gear so it's sometimes nice to have a focus on on a podcast um thanks for having me yeah this was awesome thank you so much all right everybody for tristan this is blake and as always folks good luck and good tones there you have it folks i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did Definitely go check out some live performances of Tristan in action because it's it's really impressive, really, really cool stuff. I think he's doing something truly unique, and that can be difficult to find these days. So go give it a give it a stream, give it a listen, give it a watch, enjoy it. And if you would like to hear more, well, we talked for a little bit longer over on Patreon. So If you would like to support the show and get extra content delivered to your ears, that's a great way to do so. You can go over to patreon.com slash tonemob, and five bucks a month will get you extra content every single week. So thank you to the patrons. Seriously, it helps so much. I can't even begin to tell you how much this helps. It's incredible. So thank you for supporting the show. Please share this with a friend, all that good stuff, and I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here, I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple 
and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gun Street harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and check them out.